one of the really big distinctions to understand in order for you to grow and mature. So what is happening is a lot of believers are so busy trying to apply Old Testament principles that they don't live in light of the provisions we've been given. And they don't understand the distinctions between the persons of the Godhead and how different they are uh, today versus uh, under the Old Testament, even in the Gospels, even in the Gospels. So you can see and we can prove to you very easily that the Holy Spirit uh, during Christ's earthly ministry was not present upon the earth. uh, And that you can see very clearly in John chapter 7 and verse 39 that the Holy Spirit uh, had not yet come yet. And so that's a big difference, right? The Holy Spirit came upon them and we saw that. Um, And you can see the relationship of the Holy, the um, those who who were uh, who were, um, I want to say, shown or who were awakened and the blinds removed in in John chapter 10 you can see that the father was the one that showed the people that the son was who he was it wasn't the Holy Spirit so you have all of these moving parts that are working and they're transitioning as God is progressively showing things over a period of time and people get frustrated with that you know we want things to be the same and we, we get frustrated when they're not the same. We, uh, there was a common book in uh, corporations called Who Moved My Cheese? Who I think Dan, cheese? you've heard of that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who Moved My Cheese? And what was it talking about? It was talking about this very problem. People do not like change. They do not like change. And if you come in, and so it was, it was really a book that's used to teach managers and leaders how to deal with change in the workplace because people don't like it. They just hate change. And you can see that even from a b- biblical point of view. People do not like change. So we're, ha- we're you know, um, charged with the task of teaching and trying to show you that there's change all the way throughout Scripture. There's change. And people despise it. They want things to be the same all the way through. They don't like the fact that things change. And so here tonight you can see, as we talk about and continue on this issue of maturity, that things change. So here we are in John, the 14th chapter. And so the Lord in the upper room discourse is prophesying a change that are going (laughs) to changes that are going to take place. I remember when. Um, at FedEx after I had come accustomed to the fact that FedEx is just a place of change. It just changes and it continues to change. You get used to one thing and they change it and do something else. And so people who come in who are not used to that, they get very frustrated. I said, just wait, this won't be the last change. <laughs> There'll be more changes. And you can see that you know, from a biblical point of view. Uh, as God is progressively showing over the course of time, he's revealing things uh, through the dispensation and through the ages. And, and you can see it here in John chapter 14, um, a change with relationship to the second person of the Godhead that none of those Old Testament saints could ever um, uh, have any part in. Right? And so here you see it in John chapter 14 and notice in verse, uh, we'll pick it up earlier. In verse um, 13. So here you see uh, communication. Um, used to doing Christ's earthly ministry, the disciples could turn to the, the son and say, hey, do this. Can you do this? 
and you have a word that is used for that, and I think Dan may have covered that, to ask as an equal, right? They could ask him as an equal, hey, can this be done? And now he's telling them in the future that the communication is going to change. And notice in verse 13, he says, And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, uh, and so maybe you will, maybe you won't, if you, uh, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray to Father, and he will give you another uh, comforter, another the same kind of comforter, that he may abide with you, yeah, really, is into the age. Even the spirit of truth whom the world um, is not able to receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, or really, it's, I think that's para, he, he dwells alongside of you, and he shall be in you. And so, you know, people get very <coughs> frustrated when, they, when you tell them that, the relationship to the Son is not today what it was in the Old Testament. They didn't have this kind of relationship. And when you, under, when you appreciate what God is doing, it really changes um, uh, how you understand this whole thing of, of maturity. Yes? I, I think one of the problems people have is they think, well, God doesn't change, so how could his plan change when they don't realize that God is, they don't understand the character of God, but he's mobile. He's mobile. Well, they often, that's a good point, they often uh, confuse, and, I, and I've seen this over the years, they will raise the question of, out of Hebrews, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and, to ever, and forever, and they don't understand the difference between mobility and God's nature. And so God's nature doesn't change, but his activities change. And that's the thing that they get confused in. And so, and so you, it's, most of the time, when, you, when you're able to show people that, they don't have a problem with it. It's just that they've heard that, and they don't understand that there's a difference between his nature and his activities. You can clearly see that his activities change by the fact that the son now has a human body. So you can't really, well, that's pretty clear to see. <laughs> you would hope that that would be clear to see. Um, but uh, sometimes it, even that is not um, but he, uh, notice in verse 18, and I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world sees me no more. But you shall see me because I live, and you shall live also. Now, here we are, verse 20. There's a different kind of relationship that is um, prophesied that will occur uh, when the Holy Spirit uh, comes. And I believe that's what he's referring to in verse 20 when he says, At that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and ye are in me, and I in you. And, boy, this is just like a, a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is just... What do they, they say when, uh, when they say that you're given information? Is a <laughs> That's what that is. I mean, this is just a huge scripture and a huge turn. That he's saying that it's going to happen uh, concerning uh, believers in this dispensation. And so he talks about two types of life that are going to be evident. And so we understand it to be uh, resurrection life, right, and eternal life. And so you have this relationship where the believer, he says, you and me, 
the believer is in Christ, and then he's also in the believer. You can look back through the Old Testament, and you can, and so this would be, we would call this resurrection life. What is Galatians 2.20? What did Paul say? I have been crucified together with Christ. No longer do I live. And well, implicit in that, you go back to Romans, that we've been raised together with him, co-raised together with Christ, that we died together with him, we were buried together with him. But here's the emphasis that we've been raised together with him and that we're now seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ. You can go back and you can scour the Old Testament scriptures you will not find this anywhere. Nowhere will you see this said of any saint. And so because of this, we can, we can extrapolate and show you that no Old Testament, the Old Testament saints are distinct from those who are in the body of Christ today. So when you get ready to go up in the rapture, Moses is not going to greet you in the air. Neither will David, neither will Abraham. They will not be there. So when you go up to the Bema Seat Judgment, don't look for them. They will not be there. <laughs> and I know that this disappoints you right there. <laughs> no. And so this is a totally different relationship. And so we have what is called resurrection life. And then so you and me and I and you, and you guys know what that life is, right? Everybody except for Dan and, and uh, Don. <laughs> what is that life? If you and me is resurrection life, I and you is eternal life. Yeah. Eternal life. And so that life is in the believer. We have eternal life as a possession right now. And I, and I remember this is a hard thing to understand because as a, as a kid, right, when we're in church, you're always told that you're getting eternal life and it was like some future thing, right? That it's not like some, you were going to get it now, right? Uh, and you kept looking at life in the future, never understanding that you are in possession of eternal life at the time that you believe the facts of the gospel. Now, how do you get that life? Well, John tells us very clearly in 1 John chapter 5, if you just turn over there. 1 John chapter 5. Now, notice, and I tell you, Dan talked about Dr. Schaefer, and some of his illustrations are just, you just can't get them out of your mind. He had a way of leaving that kind of an impression. And so I don't try to change some of those illustrations because it's just great illustrations, right? And so what does he tell me once? And, it's, and I find that this is very true. And now notice what this scripture says, and we'll see it. First John 5, 11. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Now imagine this is the son, right? The son has life in himself, right? So now he's in you, right? That means you have that life. That life is indwelling inside of you. Now, this is highly significant. This is really significant because the believer now has a chance to manifest this kind of life in activity. It can be seen out. 
What did what did John write in John in the Gospel of John chapter uh, John chapter one? In him was life, and that life was what? It was light. It was light. God's life can be seen out in activity in a human body. <clears throat> this was ne- didn't, never happened in the Old Testament. Never happened. That this kind of life could be seen out in these earthen vessels and, be, and shown forth. I don't know that we really, uh, this is so powerful here. And I don't, under, I don't know that we really appreciate what God has done and the potential that we have as believers when this life is seen out. And I think that a lot has happened from a legalistic point of view to try to divert believers away from this. You know, they've, they've this whole thing with evangelism that's overblown, it's all done to divert believers away from this because this is what God's really focused on here. Is this life being seen out? And how many places can you go and that's even made, even talked about? Now, it's just a blip. It's not even mentioned. And so he says, let me finish this verse in verse 11. This this is record. God has given us eternal life and his life is in his son. He that has the son has life. And he that has not the son of God has not life. So we can also understand that the unsafe man doesn't have this life. So when we, and this is important, so then when we look at the unsaved man, we cannot think of him as being the same as us. Now this ought to just go without saying, right? But do you know people might think that intuitively, but in real time they don't actually function like this is true? It's like Don says, as he saw the person at the funeral. Was that you that said? The woman at the funeral just said, get up. <laughs> well, actually, what it was was she was late at the funeral. And this person was there, and, and she was crying, and she was stroking his hand, talking to him. Talking to him. You think he's really going to get up and talking to him? <laughs> so, dead, dead men, what is that? Dead men tell no tales? Yeah. <laughs> Neither can they function. Neither can they manifest life. And look at what the church is doing now. We're spending so much time trying to tell the dead men out there, live! They are not, they're incapable of it. They're incapable of it. And the church has wasted years doing the same thing. When really the life that God is concerned about is this life that's indwelling you and me. That as the Holy Spirit produces that life, it can be seen on the outside. <laughs> Men can see it. You know, and I don't know that we really have a full appreciation for what that does and what God is doing. And I don't know that he's told us all about it. But, I, you know, it's funny because you look at a lot of those words in Scripture like dichnomy, Right. And all of these, your uh, anastrepho, your root, your habit of life, there is something that is happening that when the believer is maturing and growing and living out this life, that people can see it in a way that really all of this flapping of the gums, I think that's right. <laughs> that's right, right? Did I get it right? Flicking it to the <laughs> gums. 
that yeah. it doesn't it it does more than any of the flapping of the gums can accomplish. <laughs> and so so he says here in uh, we have this eternal life. Now this eternal life, you can see. Uh, so Paul uh, says in Galatians two two uh, twenty, I've been crucified together with Christ. No longer do. I live, but Christ liveth in me. Now, that's a song right there, right? Christ liveth yeah. in me, right? That's a, that's, that's a good one. A good we haven't sang that in a while, right? We got to yeah, sing that. Good. Christ liveth in me. <laughs> now, what, one of the things we see, and you want to turn to Colossians 1, is that that was something that wasn't revealed to generations and ages before that this was going to happen. Now, I think when he, when he said this, he covered not only people, but also spirit beings, yes. right? That they didn't know that this was going to happen. Don. I think one of the things that goes right along with what you're saying is how important it is. If you look at Colossians 1, when you look at verse 24 down to 29, particularly 27 and 28, you find out that that was at the core of Paul's message. Right. He's talking to the church that doesn't know anything about him, so he's telling them, this is my ministry. Right. He says, I preach Christ in you, so, and so I can present you mature in Christ. And there it is. Right. There, right there. there. <laughs> Bingo. If, if, if he was going to say evangelism, this would have been the place, but look what he said instead of it. Yeah, and it's, yeah, go ahead. Your, your reference is 26, right? Even the, yeah. yeah, I was going to start with uh, 25. Uh, yeah, okay, good. So this is hugely important. And, and, uh, and so I, I, you run across people, and people say, whoa. You know, it's just semantics. And you say, no, no, it's not semantics. No, what you're saying and what scripture is saying is more like a chasm. They're more like a what? Chasm. Yeah. <laughs> it's not semantics. It's not semantics. It's not semantics when I say that, you know, there's not much of a distinction between the Old Testament saints and this dispensation. It's not semantics. There is a chasm. And you can see it right here. Notice in verse 25, wherefore I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, <clears throat> which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Now, I think the, King, the, um, the NIV sometimes translates this word stewardship, but I think most of your, your translators kind of write this word dispensation out of the translation. I think um, Darby doesn't. I think Darby translates it dispensation. But this, I want you to know that this word here has become um, the word of taboo that you should never say in Christendom. You don't say this word. And I don't understand why, because it's in Scripture. But a lot of people don't say this word dispensations. It's the word that is not to be spoken. And if you say it, you're going to be crucified. Uh, And, uh, you know. Well, you got a lot of reformed guys who don't want to hear that word because it interferes with their theology. And that's what it is. And so notice he says, <clears throat> even verse 26, even the mystery which was hid. Now, notice he's going to I, I think that he's going to identify that not only that uh, men don't know about this, but neither that spirit beings know about it. He didn't let them in on what he was going to do here. So I will you, ask you. Are, are you going to take that from ages? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. 
And this is actually when this is one of the first places where they actually translate ages. <laughs> one yeah. of the few places where they yeah. translate ages actually as ages, yeah, which is interesting. interesting he says, even the mystery which was hid from ages and from generations. Now, hold your finger there. I just wanted to show you here in uh, sec- sec- First Corinthians chapter 2. Yeah. You see it again that um, I just love the scripture here, right? Because God doesn't. He, he, he doesn't reveal certain things just, to, just because of the fact that, uh, um, well, he knew what would happen if he did. And so he, he withholds information for a reason. And you see it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, notice uh, verse Paul is talking about being a Corinth. And he says, in my speech and my preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith should not uh, stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power from God. Howbeit we speak a wisdom among them that are, notice, maturing, perfect, put maturing ones. Yet not the wisdom of this, notice the word wisdom there, uh, world is not really world, it's age. The wisdom of this age, nor of the princes of this age that are come to naught. But we speak a wisdom of God and a mystery, a hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world. Um, and I would say because of our glory, or he, he um, ordained, and I would say before the ages, actually. And I would say that, that unto would really be a, a causal ideal there. Because of our glory. Notice this is the, the, the most wonderful, genius thing, right? Notice what he says. Which none of the princes of this uh, age knew it. They didn't understand what God was doing here and what he was going to do. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You know, one of the reasons why I like football is that there's a lot of trickeration involved in it and the most beautiful thing i i see in football watch out (laughs) the most beautiful thing i see in football is they have a screen pass now i'm going to show you ladies just to give you a little bit of football of what happens in the screen pass you let the instead of blocking the players you let them rush the quarterback and they think boy we've got a free shot on the quarterback and as they're rushing the quarterback, you throw the ball right where they, le- they came from. And most of the time, it's highly, highly successful play. Highly that successful play. Is a football term, isn't it? it is, it is. That's a football term. Here is what happened in a spiritual realm. So here these spirit beings, if they had known it, if they had known what God was going to do, concerning believers in this dispensation and how he was going to use the work that the son accomplished on our behalf to provide for us the maturation and the the, the doctrine that we needed to mature, they would have never crucified Christ. That, That blows my mind every time I read that scripture. And so it's, it's like he's working so many steps ahead of these, these spirit beings. They think they know what they're doing. And by the time they do what they think that, that uh, they're trying to cut God off, he's been there and gone. <laughs> it's just the most amazing thing to me. Okay, but it's easy to amaze me. <laughs> Back to Colossians 1. 
and verse 26. And so he hid from ages and from generations. Notice, uh, I did a little uh, conference paper on this once. And you have this little phrase here, this idiom called, and it's used, it's the de and the, uh, and the, and the noon um, used together. But now, and you see this used in scripture, and it's, it's a dividing point. that Here, this was happening. Now, something completely different is happening than what happened in the past. But now, so instead of this being hidden, Notice, it, but now it is made manifest to the saints. So you tell me, how could it be that if this is just now being revealed, how could Abraham have known about it? How could Moses have known about it? Or David or any of these other Old Testament saints? How could they have known about this? Right? This is pretty easy to see. Oh, yeah, right, right. Uh, verse 27, to whom God would make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ is indwelling you. He is our expectation that we could reach God's opinion of who he says we are in Christ. Christ is indwelling each and every believer. This did not happen before this dispensation wasn't possible for it to happen. And so now we have all of the, the tools and the equipment we need in order for this life to be seen out, to manifest godliness. That we have this life in these earthen vessels, and Paul marveled about that in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this life in clay pots. These fragile clay pots, God's quality of life is in these human vessels and it can be seen out as the believer live this life out in activity. And that's the thing that's the, and this is an amazing thing that wasn't uh, uh, known before. And so the Lord prophesied this knowledge that it would be possible that it was known going back to John fourteen twenty. <laughs> Uh, before this dispensation. Now notice in spiritual maturity. So we want to just look at several things in relationship of the son and how different it is in this dispensation than before. So spiritual maturity is made possible due to the relationship of the believer, uh, believers to the son. And so we see that in Colossians 1.28. And notice Christ's high priestly ministry is also a key thing that's, that's different. So if you go back over to Hebrews, and I think when you were in this area, Dan, I think you were. Yes. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 7, and notice in verse um, 25. And so here we see the son. Um, so he's now ascended up to the right hand of the father. And so he, you know, I don't know, some people think that he's just sitting there and just kind of sleep. You know, it's funny because of. Most of the time, believers think that there is no relationship that the son we have to the son today, right? That he's not paying any attention to what's going on. It's almost like in, in our present in salvation here, we almost have, have a deist attitude, right? As if the son is not paying any attention to what's going on, and we're just led, left to go our merry way, and he's not paying any attention and not really involved in what's going on. And so we see here 
that the son is intimately involved with what's going on on a daily basis <coughs> and that he's interceding for us. And that's why I can say today that there's no such thing as good luck or bad luck. There's none of that kind of stuff because the son is actively involved in the activities of my daily life on a daily basis. And so notice he says in verse 25, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for us. I think you've already covered that, didn't you, right? This idea of is interceding or making petition. And so intercession is you're, you're, you're communicating to the Father on the basis of some known need. There's some known thing that is going on. And so there are things that are going on in the believer's life on a daily basis. And the purpose of uh, this intercession is to be able to um, provide for that need, whatever that need may be. And notice... Um, He's able to save them to the utmost uh, that come to God, um, and I would say through him, seeing that he ever lives, or really, he, he lives uh, always, he's always living, uh, as opposed to the high priests that are under law, uh, to make intercession for them. And so here's where we have our, uh, a purpose uh, infinitive here that it, it gives you the idea of why. He's um, um, the purpose of what he's doing is to to make intercession on behalf of us, our our concern, I would say concerning us. And so the son is interceding to the father on behalf of us. And one of the things that he's doing that for is to keep us safe. And so you can see that uh, in a lot of different ways. And I think in in the daily activities of the son, of the believer, even up to uh, the fact that it could even include the time to discipline the believer. I believe this happened to me once before when I was steadfast deciding I was going to be a sports writer and I knew that God didn't want me to be, but I was going to do it anyway. And I could really believe, I really believe this happened. I don't know. We'll find out when we get to the Bema Seat Judgment if that was the case. But, uh, and so you have that, that, that he's interceding. And so here he's... Um, this idea of interceding, it's, uh, notice going back into verse 20, if we will, is where we really wanted to go. Insomuch that not without an oath, he was made a priest. And so this issue of an, uh, Christ was made a priest through an oath. And you see that uh, in, in other parts of scripture that he became a guarantee of a better covenant. Again, as you go through the, the uh, book of, um, of um, Hebrews, um, it, I mean, that's the the common thing, the theme that you will see is that the believer has something better. And, uh, and notice there are three advantages of Christ's priesthood is that he has an unchangeable priesthood due to the fact that he will not die. Uh, he has an ability to keep believers saved. Um, and so um, he intercedes. And notice at the end there, he, he, uh, page 12, he's suited to be uh, fit for the role of high priest. And then we give you the reasons that he's holy, uh, he's harmless, undefiled, He's separated apart from sinners. He resides in the third heaven, and he's been perfected or brought to a goal um, in this instance of overcoming obstacles. Um, and so he's, a, he's the perfect high priest for the believer. Christ's high priestly ministry highlights the failings of uh, law to produce the maturation of the Old Testament saints. And so our relationship to the Son is totally different from that that was under law. And it's, it's significant 
it's significant in the fact that the believer has the ability to mature and why you say the Old Testament saints couldn't. I mean, this issue of the indwelling Christ, Christ, uh, we indwelling in him are being in Christ and Christ in us is, is huge. And it, and it's, uh, it, it gives a line of demarcation uh, between how the Old Testament saints could mature and we couldn't. Couldn't mature and we can. I think I got that wrong. I'm just getting ready to create a heresy there. There's a, <laughs> There's a similarity between physical maturity and, um, and spiritual maturity. It's interesting. Paul says something here in 1 Corinthians 13, and I've always found it interesting. He talks about stages of development of a child. And if you're not careful, you'll, you'll go right by what he says here. Now, in the context, what he's talking about here is um, modes of revelation. And he's trying to show to the Corinthians that these modes of revelation was fitting the growth patterns of the church. The church starts off in infancy stage, and they need certain things. And along the way, you you have these different modes of revelation, and this is how it affects, uh, this is how they affect uh, your stages of growth. And, uh, and it's interesting because he's going to give you physically how people um, grow. I mean, I don't know that you could get this in a lot of places. It's interesting the way that he says this. But look here at, if, in verse 9. He says, for we know in part. Uh, so here when he says we, I believe he's talking about the apostles, right? So he says, we apostles, we know in a part. And so if you were to have a big pie right here and it's divided up, you say Paul had... Part of the puzzle, James, John, Peter. So but Paul, you, even though Paul wrote the majority of the books in the New Testament, you know there's things that other writers wrote that Paul didn't know about. Right? So we could, we could prove one for sure that John wrote Revelation 90 A.D. Paul had been dead almost 30-something years, right? And what did John write, reveal that Paul didn't know? That there was going to be two guys in the tribulation period with equal power. Paul didn't know that. You don't find it anywhere in his writings. And so they all had a part that they were, a revelation that they were given. And so he says, we know, and I would say, out from a part, and we prophesy out from a part. But when that, I would say, that perfect thing is come, <clears throat> then that which is out of a part shall be done away. Now notice he gives these, these, these uh, human developments here, um, just as an aside. When I was a child, and there's the word child there is the word napias. <clears throat> and again, I'll, I'll caution you, um, and I just heard somebody on TV and radio again saying that I'm just a baby Christian. Uh, every time I hear that, it's like fingers on the chalkboard. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> because again, I mean, as you... When you become a believer, you have all the rights and privileges of any other believer, and there's nothing that you're lacking. You have the ability to mature just like any other believer. No such thing, really. And you look at that word napias, it's never used in Scripture in a positive way. Not one time is it used in a positive way. And so notice, he says, when I was a napias. So here you're looking at a, a person that is an inarticulate babbler, Right? That it's just, you know, yapping, but it's, it's incoherent. Uh, 
And notice, and so this word napias, is, it's used uh, for physical growth in other places in Scripture. Uh, you see it used in Galatians 4. Um, also, you, use, you see it used in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And really, he said that this is, if you turn back over there a second, he said this is where the uh, Corinthians were as um, believers. Now, I think there was probably a large part <coughs> of the Corinthians, as you can read the book, what was it, 80% that were probably carnal? I don't know. I mean, we don't get a percentage. He doesn't give it, but it was quite a few. I think that the amount of people that probably were spiritual was very small. Um, I mean, if you look at what he says about in the first chapter, that it's for those of Chloe's house probably would be included in those groups because they were reporting and saying, Paul, oh, we got a mess over here. As Joyce would say, a bunch of mess. <laughs> and there's a lot of carnal people over here. And so notice... In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 1, you see this word for napias used. And brethren, I could not speak unto you as spiritual, but as unto carnal, as unto babes uh, in Christ. And so these little inarticulate ones. I don't know. A lot of believers today wear this as a badge of honor. They really do. I, I see it all the time. Believers wear it as a badge of honor. That I'm just, and it's almost like it's it's to be. Um, they look at it like it's to be um, lauded. That and and to say, okay, I found my place in the body of Christ, and it's okay. I don't have to learn anymore. Right? I, I'm just a babe, so there's nothing expected of me. Don't expect anything of me. I'm just a babe, and so I don't have to articulate anything of consequence. And that's kind of how I see it used in Christendom, but I tend to be cynical, so maybe you might see it differently than that. And, but that's the way that I've, I've uh, observed it. Now, notice in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, he says, And I, brethren, could not see un- uh, speak unto you as spiritual, but as carnal, even as babes in Christ. And notice that you can see that this is not a good thing. I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to, to, to bear it. Neither are you now able. You didn't have an ability to bear it. And so, um, you know, when you have kids that uh, they tell you when they're, they're younger not to give them solid foods. Uh, Courtney, I think, was not even um, one. And he was just eating us out of house and home. And the doctor says, oh, don't give him any solid food. Um, but Joyce's grandmother said, get that boy some cereal and put it in that milk. He's hungry. <laughs> And, of course, Grandma knew best. <laughs> she knew what the doctor didn't know. And so, but most infants can't handle solid food. And, and you see it, I mean, from a, from a spiritual standpoint and a physical standpoint. You understand physically why you don't do it, but spiritually you, you see a lot of believers and you, you, you conclude pretty quickly that they can't handle a lot. And honestly, you dial back what you would say to them. You really do. You dial back what you would say to them. Some of the things that Dan talked about in the last hour about the fact you can't sin in your mind, I have observed there are certain believers, there's no way you could tell them that. I think that they would probably have a heart attack. Guaranteed riot the first time you teach at in a Sunday school class. Almost guaranteed. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, you have a lot of people who have no... 
Well, and, and it's a, what's interesting is it's a, it's a fundamental doctrine and it can be proved in so many different ways. <coughs> and you understand that it can be proved in so many different ways. But there's a lot of believers who have heard a lot of things that are not true. So their conscience would just bother them to no end because they don't understand what scripture say, says about it. They're, they're following what somebody has told them. You know, and one of the things that I say about it is in, in Matthew 5 is very clear to see. And they bring that one up and say, well, you know, it says, uh, if a man looks at a woman to lust in his heart, he's committed adultery already. And I say, well, if you're going to take that literally, take the next verse literally too. Right? Right? Don't, now, if you don't, what gives you the right to, who decides what you're going to allegorize and what you're going to take literally? Right. And this is where a lot of the confusion has come from. But you understand very clearly there are certain things that um, uh, inarticulate believers cannot take. They can't. And so it's no matter you could dump all the information you want to on them and it's still not going to be enough. And so all you're going to do is make them gag. Right. It would be like trying to feed an infant steak. All you're going to do is make them gag, and that's what happens. And so this idea of an infant and a, a babe, and they cannot articulate what they, um, uh, what they know or understand. And you see that in a, in a physical point of view, and, and Paul is using this as an illustration here. And so notice he says, I spake as a child. And notice here he uses a word, um, and when I was a child, I, I, that word spake as I verbalized as a child. I thought, um, or I understood as a child. It's really interesting what he uses here. He used the word, forming the word for nao, from the word, the um, friend, which is the, to frame. Uh, and this is really interesting that this idea of, of, of a, a framing, uh, kind of framing that goes on there with the mind. Yes? It's more like the idea of like well, you're right. Well, I think that the frame, the framing part comes in. For example, you take Ben. He frames that there are certain people that he's going to. <laughs> there's certain people he's not going to. Right, right. <laughs> right. And, but it's interesting that he uses that. And so you have this infant state and that, that there's a thinking process going on in the mind. You might not think it is in the minds of these infants that they, I mean, these uh, inarticulate babblers, there, there's a process going on, but it's, it's not. Uh, but he uses this, this word for phreneo here of, uh, of the frame. And notice, and you have it uh, that there is a legitimai. Uh, uh, to logically to consider. So there is some of that going on uh, with an infant. But notice he says, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so notice these three characteristics that he notes in physical development. And so a, a child's speech reflects his age. A child's frame of mind reflects his age. And a child's reasoning ability reflects his age. Right. And so just think about that. And I don't know that you can always say that about Believers. I mean, I, 
I think back, and my father was a pastor for 43 years, and it's interesting that uh, I asked him before he passed away about some of the believers and, you know, where the status of where things were at. And, you know, there were some people, there were people in that church, they hadn't grown in all that time. Now, I don't know why they didn't grow. Maybe it was the doctrine. But I think it's so easy to get to the point where you just become comfortable. And it's not about the life, right? It's not about living resurrection life, seeing who I am in Christ. It's not about this life being lived out. I mean, I think it, it can get into a kind of a religiosity very fast where it's just about going to church. It's just about the activities at church, right? And it can happen very fast. And, and it's not about, and then, you know, boy, you get into some of these situations in the Christendom today, and boy, it's just even better. I mean, you got lattes and, and all this going on. I mean, you got these, you got everything going on. It was funny, uh, Pascal and Dante did a, um, an excursion going into some of these uh, churches around Orlando. Now, I've not been into some of these places, but some of the things they told me they saw, it was like the guys going into the promised land and looking over and seeing. And some of the things they said that they brought back, the report they brought back was just interesting. I'd never seen it. I didn't even know churches had some of this stuff. You didn't have thrill rides and roller coasters. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they got there yet. I, I preached in a church back in Oklahoma and, um, some years ago, and they had a credit union. This was a big church, and they had their own credit union. I remember walking by. You saw it, right? And so I saw the credit union. I'm like, yikes. <laughs> this church has a credit union? But you can, you can get off track. And so, and so you have uh, this could happen from a spiritual point of view. And I know the spiritual maturity follows a, a similar path to physical growth. A believer is expected to grow spiritually. Spiritually. I mean, that is the expectation that the believer should grow spiritually. I hope that I'm not where I was last year. But, you know, there's this thing that you can get comfortable and you can rest on your laurels and you can be comfortable with where you have gone, you've grone to. And just say, ah, I've, you know, I'm, I'm in a good place. And, 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 what, and I think what happens there is that you can, you, can, you can make it look and depend upon how people see you. It really doesn't matter how people see me. You know, it's where I'm at in relationship with how the Lord sees me is what really matters. I mean, you might think that I'm a, a, a spiritual giant, and really, in reality, I could be a spiritual midget. God knows. You're not with me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. God knows. And my wife. <laughs> Joyce, let's talk. Don't, inter- don't interview. <laughs> don't interview her. <laughs> First Peter 2. <laughs> First Peter 2. Now, there's a translation issue here, and we wanted to uh, really correct some of that. Um, and so he says, as newborn babes. And so here you have a simile, simile here. And so in a similar way, as newborn babes, desire the uh, sincerity. The word sincere, I'd rather translate it this way. Desire the logical milk of the word uh, that you may grow <laughs> in order that you might be made to grow. Here you have a passive 
and notice um, there's something or someone that is causing you to grow on the basis of this, which I think is very important to, to understand. It's not something that you're doing on your own strength. But I think that the Holy Spirit is involved here, and it's, it's causing this growth to occur. And that you may grow. Now, notice they say thereby, but I would say uh, because, of, uh, because of salvation or quality of salvation. Uh, it's, where you, <coughs> it's how it translated. And notice you see a similar thing said in 2 Peter 3.18. Now, this is really interesting, and, and I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a, I would say, a locative of sphere. Some people would translate it uh, more instrumental, uh, that grace is the means by how you grow. I think it's a sphere that you grow in. But here, nevertheless, the way it's translated in the King James, but grow in grace. So is grace the instrument by how you grow? Are are you growing in a sphere of grace, an atmosphere of grace? I think it's the latter. But grow in grace and in the knowledge, or really is an experiential knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him is glory, both now and really it's into the ages. So here's the problem, and so I was talking to a pastor friend of mine here this weekend about this. There's a lot of people who say, yes, I'm living by grace. And honestly, I don't really believe, I really don't believe that many people know what grace is. I think if you were to ask people and to ask them to define what grace is, I don't know that very many people could define it. You know what really people are living by? They're living by a hybrid of law and grace. Uh, you know, that's what they're doing. And, and most of it is not coming from the Old Testament per se, because some people at least can see that's not grace necessarily. That, I mean, there's a dis- distinction between that and, and the grace that we're living by. The problem that you can identify that there is really a huge problem, and most people don't see it, is they're dragging the Gospels over into, pres- into present and salvation, and that's the real problem, and they don't see it. But we have showed you, I think it was in this class, I don't know, my mind sometimes, I'll say it again if I don't remember that we said it here. Remember Galatians 4? Christ was born of the seed of David, and he was born and ministered when? Under law. That's one of the easiest ways to show people that that's the case. He was under law. And so I don't know how many times, and you see it, I saw it growing up, you see it with people on radio, they take the Gospels as New Testament doctrine for practice. And much of that contradicts with what you will find in the epistles. I mean, you go down, and, and we've done a paper on this before, look at all the headings of theology And if you take the Gospels as doctrine for practice today, you will be in contradiction with pneumatology, you will be in contradiction with Christology, you will be in contradiction with much of the the theology in the New Testament today. That's not grace. You know, 
And so you have that. And, and I think a lot of people are just genuinely confused because you talk to people about it and as you, you try to show them where, from a New Testament point of view what grace really is and how you can really experience it. What did Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1? But uh, be empowered by grace. And where is that grace found? Let me tell you, it's, going to, it's found in the place that those Old Testament saints couldn't find it. In Christ Jesus. So what is grace? Romans defines grace. Romans 11, 5. And we'll just look at that and we'll end there. <coughs> Romans 11, chapter and verse uh, 5 and 6. And it's hard, it's hard for people to, to really just let this be what grace is. They want to add something to it. And so they, they don't want it to be apart from works. They want to say, yeah, I believe that, but you got to do this. But notice what Paul says in Romans 11 chapter, in verse 5, he says, Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace it is no more out from works. Otherwise, grace is no more, is no longer grace. But if it be of works, it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. So when I was working, <clears throat> see, like uh, the retirement check I get now, that's grace. I didn't do anything to earn it, really. I mean, if you go to work and you get a bonus, that's grace. They're giving you something you didn't earn. And most of the time, as I looked around at co-workers, didn't deserve. <laughs> didn't deserve. But when you, when it's of, um, on the other hand, when it's of uh, grace, you get something you didn't deserve. When it's of, uh, when I got my paycheck, though, every week, that wasn't grace. I earned it. As, what did he say? Oh, uh, uh, what was the guy that used to say? Uh, e. F. Hutton earns money the old fashioned. Yeah, he says makes money the old fashioned way. They earn it. John Houseman. Right, that's what he's. And that's what happens with works. You earn it, and there's nothing that we and you and I could do to earn it. And this is a huge thing, and this is totally distinct from what you see in the Old Testament. And these these factors that we talked about here makes it possible for the believer to grow, to be spiritual, to mature. Could never find that in the Old Testament. Uh, no way, no how could they ever experience that.